Kelly. I'm Dermot. And this is the podcast where we talk about all things related to James Joyce's Ulysses. What's good with you this week, Dermot? I'm doing pretty well. Yeah, all well. Can't complain. Plenty of coffee. All right. We, we do have a lot of coffee in our home right now. All right. Well, there's a lot. This is in, in this episode. This is a jam-packed episode, so let's get right down to business. Usually we talk about a new post that's up on the blog. There's not a new post right now because I haven't finished it. So we're going to skip ahead and talk about the artwork that Dermot has concocted for this episode. Could you tell us a little bit about the artwork for our current episode of Boons and Barnacles? Yeah, it's a passing mention to uh, some kind of monster called Sir Lout. So whenever Kelly gives me uh, my my task of my ordeal of having to come up with an illustration for an article, I have to look at the, the text that we use and think, well, what's the most visually interesting thing I can pull out of it? And it's Stephen walking on Sandy Mount Strand, sinking into the sand, which, you know, you could draw that, but, you know, it's kind of mundane. And uh, then there's this passing mention of Sir Lout, who's this big rocky monster creature. And he reminded me, if anyone's seen Galaxy Quest, there's the big boulder monster in Galaxy Quest. He's made out of rocks and he chases Tim Allen around this planet. It's great fun. Mm -hmm. And if you haven't seen Galaxy Quest, see Galaxy Quest. Anyway, I thought Sir Lout sounds like that monster a little bit. So that was the visual inspiration for my version of Sir Lout. I just began drawing. And sometimes when I do this, I'll do a couple of different versions. And, and I just kept going and going. And out comes gigantic rock monster and little tiny Stephen right beside him on Sandy Monster. And... And I was kind of pleased with it, so not bad for an hour. Yeah, it was different than what I would expect for a monster, uh, a giant, because I usually think of them as being like a big baldy guy mm -hmm. um, that grinds your bones to make his bread and whatnot. Yeah, but it's a it's a quadrupedal monster made of rocks, so it's kind of interesting. Anyway, mm. if somebody wants to see that, where can they find it, Dermot? That's on bloomsandbarnacles.com. Yep, blooms a n d barnacles.com. Mm -hmm. Um, under the show notes for our current episode. So be sure to check that out. So when we record our episodes, we record the episode and then we do the intro after. So I have a correction for this episode, even though in your world it hasn't happened yet. But uh, I we talk a bit about the Kish lightship in this episode, and I say that it was put in place in 1911 that should have been 1811 it was there for a very long time kelly made a mistake including in 1904 mm. yes i am human after all what a weird job that must have been too you know floating out in the bay in a mm -hmm. little boat with a light on it slowly going mad well we talk about, we do talk that, about that in the episode so we'll leave that there mm -hmm. and our final bit of business today is Bloomsday is drawing ever nearer and we're probably all going to be in our houses and even if you are in a place where you can be out of your house there probably aren't many big social gatherings so we are trying to put together a Bloomsday that you can carry in your pocket um, supposing you have a smartphone um, and you can take this Bloomsday with you wherever you go so our second June episode we will release on June 16th, and it's going to be Bloomsday readings and other Joyce-adjacent artistic pursuits related to Ulysses that are put together by our listeners and other friends of the show who we've met over the couple of years that we've been recording. So um, we've got 
folks reading from Ulysses. It looks like we'll have at least one song. We have an original performance of a written composition and many, many more things. I'm going to edit it all together. I'm thinking about putting in some like pub sounds so you can pretend like you're in a pub while you're listening to it or other ambient sounds. You can pretend like you're at the... The beach or... Yeah, yeah. exactly. Anyway, we want to open our doors wide. Anyone who would like to read for this, um, we'd love to have you. We already have a nice little international crew that has volunteered. So if that is something you'd like to contribute to, we're looking for maybe five to seven minute clips of you reading from Ulysses, or if you have another talent you'd like to share that translates well to audio, um, go to our website. Right at the top under the banner that says Blooms and Barnacles, you'll see a thing that says Bloomsday 2020, and you can check out how to submit there. So please check those guidelines out, and we would love to have you. Uh, I haven't turned anyone away, so <laughs> it's a pretty easy audition process. Yeah, only accordions will be turned away. No. No. Oh, okay. See how inclusive and if, Catholic we are. If you have an accordion piece, <laughs> that I I guess would be like if, if you want to do one, you know, Love's Old Sweet Song or some other mm -hmm. Ulysses song on your accordion. Uh, Dermot's just gonna have to cover his ears during that section. Um, Fine. Although now we're going to get attacked on accordion Twitter. Mm -hmm. Those are mean <laughs> They're people. They're going to come for us. <laughs> okay. Angry, angry people. All right. All right. All right. Shall we move on to our passage for today? Please. Yes, let's. All right. This passage comes from Proteus. We're still working our way through Proteus. Hopefully getting everybody excited about this section of Proteus, which I know for me when I first read Ulysses, like, Kind of where we're at now is really where my uh, enthusiasm began to flag because mm -hmm. it's... it's can, have you noticed it can be very hard to understand? Really? Yes. Yes, it can. These paragraphs come from pages 44 through 45 in my edition, which is the 1990 Vintage International Edition. And Dermot is going to read for us. Go for it, Dermot. He had come nearer the edge of the sea and wet sand slapped his boots. The new air greeted him, harping in wild nerves, wind of wild air of seeds of brightness. Here I am not walking out to the Kish lightship, am I? He stood suddenly, his feet beginning to sink slowly into the quaking soil. Turn back. Turning, he scanned the shore south, his feet sinking again slowly into new sockets. The cold domed room of the tower waits. Through the barbicans, the shafts of light are moving ever, slowly ever as my feet are sinking creeping duskward over the dial floor. Blue dusk, nightfall, deep blue night. In the darkness of the dome they wait, their pushed-back chairs, my obelisk valise, around a board of abandoned platters. Who to clear it? He has the key. I will not sleep there when this night comes. A shut door of a silent tower, entombing their blind bodies, the panther sahib and his pointer. Call, no answer. He lifted his feet up from the suck and turned back by the mole of boulders. Take all, keep all, my soul walks with me, former forms. So in the moon's mid-watches I pace the path above the rocks, in sable silvered, hearing Elsinore's tempting flood. The flood is following me, I can watch it flow past from here. Get back then by the Poolbeg Road to the strand there. 
He climbed over the sedge and ely oar weeds and sat on a stool of rock, resting his ash plant in a grike. A bloated carcass of a dog lay loll on bladder rack. Before him, the gunwale of a boat sunk in sand. Un cochon sable Louis Vuillot called Gautier's prose. These heavy sands are language tide and wind have silted here, and these, the stone heaps of dead builders, a warren of weasel rats. Hide gold there. Try it. You have some. Sands and stones, heavy of the past, Sir Lout's toys. Mind you don't get one bang on the ear. I'm the bloody well gigant rolls all them bloody well boulders, bones from my stepping stones. Fee-faw-fum, I smells the blood suds and iridsmen. A point, live dog, grew into sight running across the sweep of sand. Lord, is he going to attack me? Respect his liberty. He will not be master of others or their slave. I have my stick. Sit tight. From farther away, walking shoreward across the crested tide, figures too. The two Maries, they have tucked it safe among the bulrushes. Peekaboo, I see you. No, the dog, he is running back to them. Who? First of all, bravo, Dermot. You, you all listening can't see Dermot's face right now, but I think he's a little a little shell shocked after mm. this passage. Yeah. So my initial comment about this is this is where my uh, patience kind of ran out. My first reading. <laughs> does does that resonate with you at all? Yeah, yeah, it's all packed pretty tight. Why do you feel that way? Well, it's all, again, it's all the usual run on. You know, it's one thought banged into another. And as I'm reading, I'm cold reading it. Like I didn't, I I very quickly read this before we recorded, mm-hmm. and that's the second time I read it. And you can see where he's there's the narrator's voice, and then there's the 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 inside the head, outside the head, you know, mm-hmm. back again. Um, you'd have to read it a few times to parse it to pull it apart. Mm-hmm. You're you're getting better at spotting it, though. I know that's something that's been tricky as we've gone through Proteus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we've been honest about this. Like we could have rehearsed this ten times and then recorded it. Mm-hmm. So you're hearing my initial. Like, <laughs> Very close to my first reading of it. I like the rawness of your reading, though. I, I feel like uh, if we're too polished yeah. and and uh, too professional, it, it might make people feel uneasy. Yeah. Or it might yeah. just make... Maybe it would help. But at least you get a sense of, look, hey, All right. we have one expert here and one non-expert, well, and you get to hear that. I'm, well, no, yeah, I'm you, no expert. You've read it three times, so that makes you... For me, you're my expert. Yes. So. And you read, like, shelves of books about it. So... Um, <laughs> Um, so what are your thoughts about the actual content then? Well, I, I picked up on the Martello Tower. He's talking good, about good, the good. lads in the tower and he's talking about Barbicans again. He loves his Barbican thing. When we were at the tower, we, we were, talked about the Barbicans. We were talking to the guys there about the Barbicans. What do they, because it's a, it's a castle feature, but it's not present a, in the tower. A Barbican right? is a structure on top of a castle that's used for defense. Mm-hmm. And I asked when we were at the Martello Tower, and you can hear this conversation in the episode called the James Joyce Tower and Museum, which is a few episodes back in your feed. It's clear that he's referring to the windows, these sort of narrow vertical windows in the Martello Tower's Barbicans, which is not a correct use of that word in any context except Ulysses. And I asked them why, and they kind of just said, "What Joyce just does whatever he wants. <laughs> so It sounds cool. Yeah. 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 So anyway, he's talking about the the Martello Tower clearly, and the uh, the Panther Sahib. That's uh, Haynes shooting at the the Nightmare Panther in the mm-hmm. fireplace, entombing their blind bodies. 
And his pointer, is that his gun? What, a pointer is a type of dog. Oh, okay, okay. It's a, a, a hunting dog. Oh, I see, okay. Yeah. So again, he's, he's, his feet are sinking into the sand at Sandy Cove. And uh, let's see. The flood, uh, okay, right, pool bag. So pool bag today, um, if you pull back to any Irish person today, they think of the two towers, the two big chimney towers yeah. from the... and we can go into some of this yep. when we get into yep. the analysis. Yeah, absolutely. But they wouldn't have been there back then. It would have looked clearly from the text very different from mm-hmm. what it is now. Very industrial and not populated, but by the sounds of the time, tons of stuff there. Look, I remember the carcass of a dog, right? We, yeah, we, we wrote a whole post about okay. the imagery of dogs bodies in this right and the gunnel of a boat which is written gun whale but it's pronounced gunnel mm-hmm. um it's one of those boat words like yeah. bosun is spelled and, um, boat swain and folksle uh, thorcastle and all that yeah <gasps> i didn't know that wasn't pronounced like that <laughs> there you go i think it's folksle anyway all right stone heaps of dead builders i guess he's seeing rubble and ruin and all kinds of mishmash um i no idea what sir louts toys are haven't a clue uh, mind you don't get one bang on the ear. For me, what came to mind reading that was a, a school kid getting clapped by the teacher. Let's see. Oh, a point, live dog. So that's the pointer we were talking about earlier, right? So he's seen this dog coming at him across Sandy Mount Strand. I think he's seeing the dog a as Sandy a point. Strand, yeah. Like he sees a point moving yep. and then it gets closer and it's a live dog. Right. It grew into sight running across. Okay. And then he's, I've got my stick. I can beat it with the stick. If it but yeah, me. it definitely recalls that same language, the pointer mm-hmm. and then the, a point appearing on the beach. Yeah. And I can, I can actually, I, a year ago, I couldn't have understood that terror, but I do now because in the preceding year, I was attacked yeah. by a dog and yeah. you never look at them the same after that. They yeah. all become potential attackers. And you go from one state to the other. There's nothing in between. Let's see. Two figures, two Marys. That's actually the two Marys. The two Marys. Oh, Yeah, okay. we'll, we'll talk about that. I, I spent okay. some time reading from the Gospel of Matthew this morning mm-hmm. in preparation for this. Good I believe theory. it was Matthew. It might have been Mark. One of the M ones. One of the M Gospels. So is this Tatters the dog? This is Tatters, no. yeah. Okay. I, I don't know if it's in the next or the next next episode, but Tatters Could is... Be named. All right, should we get into these sections in more depth? Yeah. He had come nearer the edge of the sea, and wet sand slapped his boots. The new air greeted him, harping in wild nerves, wind of wild air of seed's brightness. Here I am not walking out to the Kish lightship, am I? He stood suddenly, his feet beginning to sink slowly in the quaking soil. Turn back. So part of this is just logistical. Stephen has walked to the northern end of the strand and he can't really go much further. It also introduces the sinking imagery. I'm just going to point out the sinking imagery here and we're going to sink into it as we we go forward. But there's a lot of sinking in this passage that we've selected for today. What I wanted to focus on here was the phrase Kish Lightship. Do you know what the, the Kish Lightship is? I don't know what the Kish lightship is, but I know what a lightship is. It's like a floating lighthouse. Yeah. So there is a sandbar out off the coast of Dublin, and it is very, very treacherous. There have been a lot of shipwrecks there over the years. Prior to 1965, technologically, it was not really possible to build a lighthouse there. I believe they they tried, but it just it didn't work. Mm. So what they did was they anchored a ship in that area beginning in 1911 and ending in 1965. 
that had a, yeah, a big floating lighthouse on it. So there was a ship moored out there off the coast of Dublin that acted as a lighthouse. And then in 1965, they built a new lighthouse, but it's a floating lighthouse. It's it's not, again, it doesn't have a foundation. It, it floats. So it's it's fairly unique in the world as far as lighthouses go. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, it's I think just called the Kish Light now. You can find it on Google Maps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's a, a picture there of the, the Kish lightship for you. It says Kish on the side. <laughs> and we'll put a picture of that in the notes. It, it's just kind of an odd little thing. Yeah. I'd never yeah. heard of a lightship before this. Yeah, would have been a tough job. Mm-hmm. On the boat, anchored, just manning the light with the seagulls and the lobster soup. Yeah, Dermot is referring to the uh, Robert Eggers film from 2019, The Lighthouse, which I enjoyed. I I don't know if enjoyed was the the word for you. It definitely stuck stuck with us. Oh I yeah. Think. yeah. Uh, don't watch it until the lockdown slash quarantine has been lifted. I have seen multiple friends on social media say, I didn't know that's what the lighthouse was going to be, and I wish I had waited to watch it. Yeah. So it's about two men um, stuck in a lighthouse in Nova Scotia. Going mad. Yeah. Back to Ulysses. Speaking of other people going mad, turning, he scanned the shore south, his feet sinking again slowly in new sockets. The cold, domed room of the tower waits. Through the barbicans, the shafts of light are moving ever, slowly ever as my feet are sinking, creeping duskward over the dial floor. So, again, logistical stuff here. Stephen turns and looks south. And from Sandy, this point on Sandy Mount, you wouldn't be able to see the Sandy Cove Martello Tower. It's thought there is a similar tower. I can't Mm -hmm. remember the name of it. But there is a similar tower along Sandy Mount that you you would probably be able to see from Stephen's vantage point. But he begins thinking about that tower. How does he feel about the tower? Not happy. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) It's not really a a cozy memory here. The cold domed room of the tower waits. It doesn't doesn't sound like... And and really this tower was just like one cylindrical room where they had like cots and like fold out beds and like hammocks slung up, you know, where the, the three of them would have been kind of bunking together. Yeah. The, I, I cannot stress enough, the Martello Tower was not meant to be lived in. No. Except by like hardened military men. Yeah, and this is the, the Barbicans that has these sort of vertical slit-like windows. And, and he talks about in Telemachus as well, the shafts of light moving across the floor Slowly ever as my feet are sinking, there's that sinking imagery again, creeping duskward over the dial floor. And it's a round floor, I think, like like a dial. Yeah, so it's not really a cozy memory of his tower life. He's kind of turning south and just thinking like, oh yeah, I have to go back to that tower with that idiot and the other idiot. And he has the Sandy Mount Tower to remind him of the, yeah, what it's going to be like. Right. He really doesn't want to. I mean, even even at the end of Telemachus, he's pretty much made up his mind not to go back. Mm-hmm. And it's in this section in Proteus, he concretely makes that decision. Now, when he left the tower in a huff, right, at the beginning of the book, or not in a huff, but he's walking mm. I'm, I'm confused about the, the, the logistics. Like, how does he get from that tower to Sandy Mount and the oh, Sandy okay. Mount Tower? Well, he doesn't really leave in a huff. So the the book opens in the tower. He has the breakfast. Right. 
uh, the milkwoman comes. Yeah. And then the other two go down to bathe at the 40 foot. And right. Stephen, Stephen is very hydrophobic. He's afraid of water. Mm -hmm. So he doesn't bathe. Like, he, it's, it's, they make a point to say at some point that Stephen hasn't bathed in a long time. He oh. doesn't like bathing. But he leaves then to go to his school and teach his morning lessons. Oh, okay. And then they have like a half day. So he has a conversation with Mr. Deasy. Right. But as he's leaving at the end of Telemachus, Mulligan asks him to leave the key on his clothes. And that the plan is then at half 12, he and Haynes and Mulligan will meet up at a pub called The Ship mm -hmm. where they will have noontime a liquid lunch together. Right. So I th I think that's that's kind of the idea. It's like, well, he's leaving, leave the key. But this is kind of played in Stephen's mind as Mulligan's usurpation of his home, which is a tower. Um, it gets a little more complicated when you start overlapping real life with it because in Ulysses, it said that Stephen pays the rent on the tower. But in real life, I think Joyce was kind of hmm. freeloading there a bit. Gogarty paid rent on the tower. There's a... A government record of, of him taking out the lease on the tower so we've kind of discussed both so they start to i know in my mind like they'll start to kind of mix together yeah yeah but yeah um, but so he would have gone back onto sandy mount Strand right so he would be in Dolkey, and then i think he would have gone back up and gotten the tram okay which which i think <clears throat> mm, i know where the dart line goes now mm -hmm. so i don't know if that's exactly where the tram would have gone in 1904 but he i think would have caught a tram from Dalkey to sandy mount because it's a long distance it's, it's quite a long ways to walk yeah mm -hmm. i think it's um from sandy cove to um sandy mount is about eight or nine miles right yeah it's a long walk so it's he, a long took, walk. he took some sort of transport that would be my guess yeah okay and he's now on the northernmost end of Sandy Mount near Poolbeg, mm -hmm. which, yeah, I think would have been more accessible to pedestrian traffic in those days. Right. Because what well, we talked about, the Pigeon House had opened in 1903. The Poolbeg, mm -hmm. the big towers weren't there yet. Right. Anyway, this, okay. all this, this kind of geographical stuff, if you want to know a lot more about it, there's a book called The Ulysses Guide by Robert Nicholson that is really, really helpful if this is of interest to mm -hmm. you. Um, I think it will be easy for somebody from overseas who's not familiar with Dublin yeah, to go, Sandy yeah. Cove, Sandy Mount, are they beside each other? They're not really. They're, they're, they're There's just a lot of apart. sandiness in that yeah. part of the world. And they're these two identical, <laughs> no, not identical, but very, very similar towers yeah. as well. It is confusing. Yeah, yeah, the Martello Towers are pretty uniform on the east coast of Ireland. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, obviously it's not possible for everyone, but the, the best way to get a feel for this is to go to Dublin and walk around. Mm -hmm. If you have that option, you should you should definitely do it. From Matt Damon, if he's if, listening. If yeah. not, like Google Street View is is pretty Street comprehensive. View is great. Yeah. So, yeah. all right, shall we? Yep. Yep. Uh, Google does not sponsor this podcast. No, they don't. <laughs> uh, next, blue dusk, nightfall, deep blue night. In the darkness of the dome, they wait. Their pushed back chairs, my obelisk valise, around a board of abandoned platters. Who to clear it? So Stephen is imagining that, you know, the sun is, is kind of passing westward. It's, it's coming on dusk, nightfall, it's getting dark. And that Haynes and Mulligan are kind of sitting at the table in the tower, looking around. Everything's in, in disarray. The pushed back chairs, they're not tucked under the table. Abandoned platters, around a board of abandoned platters. And they're kind of thinking, where's Stephen? Like his, his luggage is still here. The... Obelisk. I don't know why it's called obelisk, but a valise is like a suitcase. Mm -hmm. 
You know, Steven's things are still here. Where is he? Who's going to clean up? Definitely makes it feel like Steven thinks that they expect Steven to clean up. They aren't really missing Steven. Like, do they even notice that he's gone? Because it doesn't say explicitly they're, they're wondering where he is or where he could be. Just who is going to clear the, the board, which I think means the table. So Stephen and Mulligan, I believe Mulligan refers to Stephen as dog's body in Telemachus. How, how would you define dog's body? Oh, somebody who does manual work of a low mm -hmm. quality. Um, somebody you can order around. Mm -hmm. So I think he's looking at Haynes and Mulligan as these two kind of upper class twits mm. who treat him as a dog's body. It's his job to come and clean up while they kind of lay around and mm. act pseudo intellectual. Right, he's Baldrick from Blackadder. Yeah, uh, he does, and he has a cunning plan. Mm -hmm. He's just going to abandon his home. Yeah. So and again, like the the only thing they're appreciating out of him is that he seems to be the one that cleans up. So. Yeah, Stephen's feeling kind of down and out here. He does not like Mulligan and Haynes. A little bit of James Joyce biographical history. So Joyce himself left the tower in 1904 in the autumn under much more dramatic circumstances. The story that's told is that Trench, who was Haynes, we have podcasts about all these people's real lives, was firing a gun in the middle of the night and this upset Joyce and he stormed out. I in that podcast and in this one too. I I'm not I'm not sure the question about the the gun or the story about the gun is actually true. Mm. I think it it was fabricated by Oliver St. John Gogarty. When we were in the tower the first time, I I thought where is the bullet hole and the ricochets. And the second mm -hmm. time we were there, we spoke to the guys and they said the very same thing. Where is the bullet hole? Where are the ricochets? Yeah. There are no marks of a gunshot anywhere. Now there could have been a weird one, but. Mm -hmm. No one's found it. Yeah, and what we do know is Gogarty was a world-class BSer. Yeah. Whatever happened, my belief is that Joyce and Gogarty got into a big argument, and regardless of what happened, though, Joyce, in a fury, stormed out in the middle of the night in the rain and walked to his aunt and uncle Murray's house in Sandy Mount. And we talked about his uncle William and aunt Josephine Murray back in a podcast episode called Nuncle Richie. So you can learn more about them there if you want to. Um, and that after he stormed out, he later sent for his things, which included manuscripts of stories that would later appear in Dubliners. But um, yeah, he he was hardcore done with uh, Gogarty and Trench in real life in... Ulysses he carries it out in a more passive-aggressive way because he has not told them and as far as I recall doesn't actually tell them and over the course of at least the on on page material in Ulysses like yeah I'm I'm moving out hmm. and he sees them later I don't remember them discussing it so the next part here he has the key I will not sleep there when this night comes so Stephen has decided definitively to not return to the tower uh, it is a question of now where is he going to live? He doesn't want to return to his father Simon's house because he's kind of a drunk jerk. And he d he recounts all of his debts that he owes to people in Nestor, the previous chapter. He doesn't really have any money except for the four pounds in his pocket. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's effectively homeless. By casting off the his oppressors, it has made him homeless. Mm. Next. A shut door of a silent tower, entombing there 
blind bodies, the panther Sahib and his pointer call no answer. So panther Sahib and pointer. Sahib is a term of respect. This definition comes from wiktionary.com. Is a term of respect for a white European or other person of rank in colonial India. So panther Sahib is Haynes, the Englishman staying in the tower with them. And it means Haynes and by extension, the English colonialists, which Ireland is still a, a colony of England at this point. Mm -hmm. It's part of the United Kingdom. Right. So he's he's referring to him with this sort of honorific title. He's speaking up to him, uh, the colonial master as a colonial servant, I guess, mm -hmm. or the colonized person here. And uh, the panther is because of that panther dream that was mentioned in Telemachus and mm -hmm. by Eudermit. Pointer. So we, we mentioned this before. A pointer is a breed of dog. The pointer, so dog, is Buck Mulligan, the panther sahib's faithful dog. Oh. And by extension, this refers to the Irish upper classes who are servile and loyal to their colonial masters, the English. That's a real insult to Oliver, St. John Gaugherty. Yeah. Well, Joyce sees it as a or Stephen, I should say, as an insult to him mm -hmm. because he is there. He is, is not even so high as a, a dog. Mm -hmm. He is a dog's body. Mm -hmm. He's one rank lower. He is their servant. So he's the servant of a servant. Right. Yeah, no, he doesn't think very high of them. Uh, <laughs> doesn't think very highly of them. This is some good begrudgery. Yeah? Mm -hmm. Do you want to expand on that? A begrudgery being the old, well, the, the, the pre-modern uh, practice of Irish people of begrudging <laughs> everybody anything. Mm -hmm. And right down to like small stuff, like a new pair of shoes. I'll begrudge you those shoes. Well, begrudgery to me feels very petty. Don't don't you think that Stephen is is feeling the weight of colonial? Yeah, oppression? no, no, it is. It's from that, and anybody can begrudge from any country, mm -hmm. but just in Ireland, it's a been it's a thing that mm -hmm. people talk about and the begrudgery of you know, <laughs> any anybody who has any little infinitesimal success over I, years. Yeah. I laugh not at what you're saying, but because I was thinking. Stephen is more of a mindset of, oh, yes, I am crushed beneath the weight of colonial oppression and also screw that guy in particular. Yeah. It's very personal for him. Yeah. He lifted his feet up from the suck and turned back by the mole of boulders. Take all, keep all. So we'll do this kind of in reverse. The take all, keep all, I think, refers to the English, right? They've taken all from mm -hmm. Ireland. They've kept it all. Mm -hmm. There's nothing left for Irish artists or folks mm -hmm. like Stephen. So here he lifted his feet up from the suck. So we're talking a lot about the sinking imagery. And I think what they're getting at then is we look at Stephen kind of thinking about all this, this colonizer, colonized dynamic and that it is really his central complaint with Ireland is that he's kind of sinking there. He's, he's sinking into this kind of morass of, of, of just nothing. He's not going anywhere. He can't do anything. He's not recognized. He's third fiddle to these these other two mm -hmm. silly people who get more respect because they're either class-wise from the right place or ethnically from the right place, and he's totally overlooked. He's just sinking, sinking, sinking down into that frustration of being in Ireland. And you'll notice then when he's, right after this, when he's decided to not return to the tower, he lifted his feet up from the suck. So even though he's effectively homeless as of this moment, he is able to free himself from that sinky sand of um, the Irish hierarchy, mm -hmm. the colonial hierarchy. 
one other geographical note here, the mole of boulders, if you're wondering what that meant. Um, this is from the Gifford and Seidman annotation. Quote, the seawall topped by Poolbeg Road that extends the south bank of the Liffey east into Dublin Bay for more than two miles. The Pigeon House sits astride the wall a mile and a half in from Poolbeg Light at the wall's end. Mm. So he's just kind of at that northern, northernmost edge there. He's 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 up near the the southern bank of the the River Liffey that runs through the city center of Dublin. Right. Does that help you picture where it is? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, me too. Next. My soul walks with me, form of forms, so in the moon's mid-watches I pace the path above the rocks, in sable silvered, carrying Elsinore's tempting flood. This phrase, form of forms, refers to his soul. He's talked about this before in Nestor, the previous chapter. This is sort of the Aristotelian term for a soul. We wrote a, a blog post about a year ago called Form of Forms, where we go into that kind of Aristotelian imagery. I've never had the courage to do a podcast about it because I feel like I would just be reading from my blog post. So you can you can find that. I'll link it in the show notes with this episode too. So we see that Stephen is not only taking his physical form, he lifted his feet up from the suck, but my soul walks with me. He's taking his soul with him as he picks up and leaves, freeing himself from the the sinking. He will not sink into the swamp of sadness like the horse Artax from the movie The Neverending Story. Uh, okay. <laughs> he instead is going to, I think, kind of regain his 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 position as exile. He's going to leave Ireland, ultimately. Um, I think that's what Stephen wants. It didn't work when he was in, Ke in, in Paris with Kevin Egan. He's not going to be Kevin Egan. Mm. He's going to free his soul from Ireland. Because mm. maybe that's what was wrong with Kevin Egan. He never... Separated from Ireland. That's what's holding him back. More so, he never separated from a version of Ireland in his head mm. that was like frozen and romanticized mm -hmm. and yeah. became like a very reactionary, like a fetish or a mm -hmm. totem or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think Joyce had a, a very negative view of Irish culture. I know he referred to it as the, the Irish as the most benighted people in all of Europe mm. and saw um, engaging with continental culture as a, a very freeing way to express himself artistically. Right. So that that's kind of what I'm what I'm thinking there. Mm -hmm. My soul walks with me, form of forms. And then there's a bunch of Hamlet stuff here. The other is, is kind of a reference to Hamlet. I, I believe it's from a, a scene, I can't remember which act, where Horatio is 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 asking Hamlet to not go out and look for the ghost mm -hmm. of his father because he might be tempted to jump over the walls into the the water surrounding Elsinore Castle. Hmm. But Hamlet does go out and see his father. And, yeah. And Scooby and the gang came in and mm -hmm. pulled the mask off. Yeah. And it was really Mr. Jenkins, the, oh, it the was, gardener. It was Claudius. Yeah. And he would have gotten away with it too. If, it if it weren't for that meddling place. Hamlet. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, next, the flood is following me. I can watch it flow past from here. Get back then by the Poolbeg Road to the Strand there. So a little more geographical education. He climbed over the sedge and ely ore weeds and sat on a stool of rock resting his ash plant in a grike. So Stephen is kind of making a loop here and coming back to the, the strand. And then he sits on a rock and he rests his ash plant, which what is his ash plant? His walking stick. Uh-huh, in a grike. What's a grike? Uh, well, I only know this because you told me. It's a, a deep cleft <laughs> in limestone rock. 
and uh, from water erosion. And we've got plenty of that in Ireland and uh, apparently a unique habitat for plants. Yes, that's the uh, Wiktionary definition. Yes, and I will not, yeah. not gainsay Wiktionary. So he kind of sits on a rock and he takes his little walking stick and kind of um, finds a, like a cleft in the rock and kind of mm -hmm. steadies it there. And he's looking around him now and what does he see? A bloated carcass of a dog lay lolled on bladder rack. Before him, the gunwale of a boat sunk in sand. Un coche ensemble, Louis Vuillot called Gautier's prose. So, un coche ensemble is a, a, a car mired in sand. Uh, these two French writers here, so Louis Vuillot is a French journalist and an author who helped popularize the philosophy known as Ultramontanism, which uh, mainly favors papal supremacy. He was very, 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 very Catholic and also very anti-Semitic. Really? Oh. Yeah. So, Gautier was a poet, a critic, a novelist, and a defender of Romanticism. Vuillot hated him, and in the Gifford Seidman annotation, they said, quote, he was famous for a flamboyant romanticism with overtones of frank hedonism and a pagan contempt for traditional morality. They didn't like each other, and I think uh, Vuillot wrote um, against him quite a bit. Um, so I think when Stephen is looking at the, uh, the, the gunnel of a boat, which, how would you define gunnel? Uh, it's a part of a boat. <laughs> <laughs> I believe it's like the, the top edge of, of, a, of a boat. But it's, it's part of a boat that's sunk in sand. He sees a, the bloated carcass of a dog that's washed up there and laying on some seaweed. And he's, he, he gets this, you know, uh, Im you know it, it calls to, to mind, uh, it calls to his memory this, this comment that he had read. Um, and he starts to see kind of himself, I think, sunken in sand. He, he feels himself like this literal dog's body, um, like a figurative kosh or car, that should he remain in Ireland, as symbolized by his boots and the gunnel and the, the dog and the car all sinking in wet sand, that, uh, that's, that's kind of his, his future, you know. Mm. He's going to end up ensemble, right, just mired in sand, mm -hmm. kind of falling through quicksand. And the religious zealots like Vuillot are the cause of that sinking, you know, and, you know, Catholic zealots. Oh, his life in Ireland had he stayed would have been horrendous. <laughs> why, why do you say that? Well, he would have gotten caught up in 1916 with the smart mouth on him. He would have made enemies on one side of the fight mm -hmm. or the other, or like the Civil War would have come along and he'd make mm -hmm. even more enemies then. They could have gotten killed. You know, again, the kind of stuff he wrote about people, he didn't hold back. And then the church is a very theocratic state in the early mm -hmm. phase and for quite, quite a long time. For the rest of his life, he would have been living in a basically like a Catholic dominated mm -hmm. state. And, you know, he would have hated every second of it. Mm -hmm. you know, he had no choice. Yep. Yeah. So let's let's take a, mo a moment and talk about this literal dog's body. So Stephen sees his own lowly state kind of reflected in this discarded dog's carcass. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's sad to think about, if, especially if you like animals or dogs, you yeah. know, that this wasn't a dog that was loved or taken mm -hmm. care of. It, you know, he must have drowned and then his body washed up here and now it's just kind of this dead thing. Mm -hmm. um, Richard Elman wrote a bit about this in his book called Ulysses on the Liffey. And he sees this image as a, 
a symbol of the dissolution of matter and of living things. So we've talked a lot about the, the protean imagery of this episode, of things that are change, and that this dissolution, this decay and disintegration is a part of the protean change of, of life. Is that all, all living things are born, they live, they age, and they die. And so the the dog, the dog's body here, it kind of symbolizes that. And it recalls to mind the drowned man from the end of Telemachus, who, as you know, w- will become a more dominant image at the end of this mm-hmm. episode. Elman writes in Ulysses on the Liffey. A single process binds the two parts of the episode, birth and death. This is not growth, but corruption. Stephen sees all created things in process of decay, every day dying a little, as if death were a concurrent process. So some examples of this are the the decay of his own house, right? Which mm-hmm. we get back to that kind of Uncle Richie scene. Mm-hmm. Um, he literally says houses of decay. He thinks about Jonathan Swift going mad in his old age, right. which we also kind of debunked mm-hmm. in the episode called Who is This Dan Ockham Fellow? Right. Um, he thinks of broken marriages. He, um, he thinks of Lucifer's fall, which comes later. All these kind of once mighty things kind of fallen and into dusty dusty decay mm. yeah elman says all life sinks in the wet sand like stephen's boots it's very grim here kind of sad yeah. bit goth yeah which i think that fits stephen yeah but he's 23 22 mm. he's a bit emo yeah these heavy sands are language tide and wind have silted here and these the stone heaps of dead builders a warren of weasel rats Hide gold there. Try it. You have some. And that last little bit, I think, is you have some. That's Stephen's uh, four pounds he's gotten from Mr. TC. Elman sees this as an example of the dissolution of language, that maybe it's through art, um, language if you're a writer or a poet, uh, that you can achieve immortality and you will not have to succumb to corruption, dissolution, decay, and death. But... This kind of shows that even language succumbs to shifting tides. Even language erodes and becomes sand over time. Um, that art is not free from corruption, dissolution, decay, and death. And perhaps art is not the way to Im- immortality after all. That mm. in, in time, all things end. Nothing is eternal. Right. Yeah. I think having that realization as a young person, um, it causes suffering. Well, yeah. or so the Buddhists say, attachment to permanence causes suffering. Yeah. It, well, if you place all of your hope on posterity as mm-hmm. a replacement for um, eternal life in a mm-hmm. theistic sense, then yeah, you're in trouble because everything's going to decay. Even the universe, yeah. if the physicists are right, will turn to like a sea of just subatomic particles. Mm-hmm. And it's, yeah, so there's no immortality in any of that. So, you know, it, to me, it's just about doing stuff that's interesting. You know, you're, you're taking a, a bunch of matter and like a modeling clay and you're trying to do something with it. And it might last a year or a thousand, but it's ultimately it's going to go. Mm-hmm. I don't lose any sleep about old buildings being destroyed, like the really old ones. You see those rubble piles in, in the desert that get blown up mm-hmm. by, by whatever militia this week. It's going to go into the dust anyway. They just accelerated it by 500 years. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really not that big a deal. There's plenty of stuff still under the ground. It's it's not ideal, but you know ultimately, if you're both like completely rational about it, no, it's all transient. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not saying we should start burning oil paintings or anything, but you know, 
If somebody told me tomorrow, oh, some fella broke into the Louvre and burnt the Mona Lisa, I wouldn't care. It's completely, we have the photographs. Mm. Doesn't matter. That would make me sad. Yeah, but you don't make it Just the, the, the passage and sure. ending of, sure. of an era into another always has, is tinged with a bit of sadness. Oh, it is, and it should be, but yeah, it's not, a, it's not an end. It's, not, it's nothing that you should have a nervous breakdown over. Like even Notre Dame, you know, even if it could completely collapse tomorrow, we should build a new, build something else there, something nice. Mm, that yeah, would make me sad. Good coffee shop or something. <laughs> There's a great coffee shop across the river at the uh, Shakespeare and Company bookstore. Uh, okay, well, mm -hmm. next time we're there. Mm -hmm. Sands and stones, heavy of the past, Sir Lout's toys. Mind you don't get one bang on the ear. I'm the bloody well gigant, rolls all them bloody well boulders, bones for my stepping stones. Fee, fa, fum, I smells the bloods, uds, and iridsmen. So heavy of the past. Let's look at that phrase. So I think this is the, the crush of the nightmare of history. Stephen's looking at all the, the sand, you know, sand, which is kind of rocks that have eroded over time mm -hmm. and seashells and other things yeah. and stones, all these these heavy things. And they're heavy of the past. It's, it's kind of the reminding the crush of, of this nightmare of history. Mm. Right. In the present, he's sinking in the past. There are these heavy stones holding him down. This the nightmare and oppression of, of right. his own history of, of himself and of his people. So Sir Lout here is where it gets a bit fanciful. Sir Lout is a, a giant whose teeth are made of stone, which is why he talks that way. And I think Sir Lout is kind of a this Joycean or maybe Dedalian creation myth for Sandy Mount. That I think there are certain mythologies, and I think this might include both Irish and Norse mythology, where the, the world was once ruled by a race of giants, and mm. they kind of made things the way they are, and then humans came and took over. And the Greek Titans as well, right? Sure, yeah. yeah. So I think Sir Lout is maybe from that group, and we will see that confirmed here. I think the uh, Giant's Causeway as well was supposed yeah. to be built by two giants throwing rocks at him. Right? Mm -hmm. right, and that's how Sandy Mount was built too. Mm. So I got this information from a book called James Joyce and the Making of Ulysses by Frank Budgen, who was a friend of Joyce's. And this is a little dialogue between Budgen and Joyce. Who are Sir Lout and his family? Frank Budgen said. The people who did the rough work at the beginning? Yes, said Joyce. They were giants right enough, but weak reproductively. Fasolt and Fafner in Das Rheingold are of the same breed, sexually weak as the music tells us. My Sir Lout has rocks in his mouth instead of teeth. He articulates badly. So that, that's... Take from that what you will. Das Rheingold is from the, the Ring Cycled by Richard Wagner. Mm -hmm. So that's all about those kind of Germanic myths and whatnot. So yeah. I think that's where Sir Lout comes from. Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, that, that kind of mythology I think is common throughout European or Indo-European cultures. Yeah. yeah. So I, th I think this is... Uh, Stephen looking at this, this boulder that he's sitting on, all these boulders that make up the, this kind of seawall in the north end of Sandy Mount there and imagining them coming from this very ancient place put there by giants and now he's sitting there on top of them. I guess it's a bit fanciful. Mm -hmm. Right. A point, live dog, grew into sight running across a sweep of sand. So like we said, I think he sees a point and then it moves closer, live dog. Yeah, grew into sight running across a sweep of sand. Lord, is he going to attack me? Respect his liberty. You will not be master of others or their slave. I have my stick, sit tight. So this calls 
into sight. Steven slash Joyce's fear of dogs. James Joyce was very frightened of dogs. He disliked them. I think he's quoted in that same book by Frank Budgen as saying this, this book was not written by a dog lover. Hmm. Joyce's younger brother Stanislaus wrote in his biography of his brother entitled My Brother's Keeper that they went on a family trip when they were young to the seaside town of Bray, which is south of Dublin. And while they were there, James was attacked and badly bitten on the leg by, a quote, an excited Irish terrier. Um, the wound was bad enough that he had to be taken to a doctor for care and I believe had, like, carried scars of it. So um, Stephen has a similar fear of dogs. And he is sitting here. He's up on this rock. He can't really go anywhere. Um, and he's forced to confront his fear on this, uh, while he's here on the, the strand, starting with his literal terror of a dog um and to his credit he stands his ground he what does he say uh i have my stick so he's he's kind of holding the ash plant like oh here we go it's go time <laughs> um sit tight and i find this this line here kind of curious you will not be master of others or their slave so he will neither be master nor slave of others he is his own master and his own slave Right. He doesn't want to be mastered by this dog, but he also doesn't want to be the dog's master. I think that extends then to um, Mulligan. Mm -hmm. He doesn't really want to be Mulligan's slave, but he doesn't want to be his master either. Because right. Right? Mulligan is kind of the dog in that metaphor. And it would ex extend to others around him too. Um, like Mr. Deasy, for instance, and the Anglo-Irish ascendancy and whatnot. Mm -hmm. he, uh, he wants to be free of it, but right now he's got to fight this dog. <laughs> All right, last little bit here. From farther away, walking shoreward across the crested tide, figures two. The two Marys. They have tucked it safe among the bulrushes. Peekaboo, I see you. No, the dog. He is running back to them. Who? So two Marys, and this refers to the women at the tomb of Jesus. So this is a passage here from Matthew. It was Matthew. Matthew 28, 1 in your King James Version of the Bible. Could you read that for us, Dermot? In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulchre. The two Marys are referred to a lot here. And I don't believe this is Mary, his mother. It's one of so. his followers. But I like that it was Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. Notice again we have three Marys. There yeah. are often three Marys. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, there's another woman named Salome who's mm -hmm. a reference to and. They said they'll call her Mary Salome, mm -hmm. even though maybe she wasn't Mary, but she, um, yeah, she just gets to be Mary. I think Mary was a very common Hebrew name yeah. at that point. Lots of Marys everywhere. Well, plenty of them, but in Ireland, three Bridgets, and it suggests to some people that it's a hint at a Trinitarian idea. Mm -hmm. you know. I, to me, it would make more symbolic sense for there to be three Marys, mm -hmm. and there, there are, like, if you want to read a Wikipedia page about this, you have to look for three Marys and not two Marys, mm -hmm. and when you see artistic depictions of this, there's always three women, and right. there are three Marys. Mary Magdalene, the other Mary, who's the She's the mother of some people and who's one of his followers. And then Mary Salome. Mm -hmm. um, but at the dawn, there's the two Marys. So that's what I try to figure out what's the distinction between two Marys and three Marys, since he mentions the two Marys here. Mm. Um, Have you ever heard Nolly Maitangere? Tell me about it. 
It's, it's one of those weirded Irish things that, you know, my mum would call somebody a nolly me tangere. It means it's Latin for touch me not, because that's what Christ said. When I think it was, it might have been the Marys or some of his other followers reached out to touch him. Mm-hmm. And he said, touch me not. So mm-hmm. I think maybe some Gnostics were getting the idea that, oh, he's not corporeal. Your hand will go right through him. Mm-hmm. Anyway, just a little Irishism, mm-hmm. a little bit fragment of Latin that people were still using. Mm-hmm. Did you have anything else to say about two versus three Marys? No. Okay. Mm-hmm. Just I'm always looking for for these odd little threes because mm-hmm. it does seem to it's it's one way I think that an ancient writer too would just be very clever mm-hmm. to like buttress the idea of there's three of these yeah there's three Marys there's there's three aspects of God or whatever right yeah it 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 makes more sense to me for there to be three Marys but yeah um it wasn't Karen it wasn't Mary Mary and Karen no no they're all no. well either it was Mary Mary and Salome but she had to be. <laughs> <laughs> Mary Salome to uh, fix it, um, but yeah, at the the dawn, yeah, the, at the dawn of the first day of the week, uh, there were Mary and Mary at at his mm. his tomb, and I think the third Mary. I didn't read the whole thing. I'll be honest. Mm. I can only read so much Bible at a time. Uh, yeah. Um, but in the life of Christ, Mary, a Mary of some sort, is present at Christ's birth and at his death, and at his resurrection. Mm-hmm. So Mary is is kind of a constant thread mm-hmm. throughout. Yep. Um, so when we're seeing these two Marys, I think it's key here that it's two, mm-hmm. because what we're seeing here is birth and death juxtaposed, right? right? And we see that in this, this episode, right? Mm-hmm. We, there's birth imagery with the two supposed midwives, all of the, mm-hmm. the omphalos and the consubstantiality, um, and now we're we're starting to move into the death motif, right? And I think the two Marys then are kind of that birth and death juxtaposed, like I said, next to each other. Right. That, yeah, Mary of birth and Mary of death are there side by side. And no resurrection. Not for Stephen. Mm. Well, I I mean I I don't know. Mm. <laughs> well, let's keep an eye out for that because I I, okay. I hadn't really seen it. Birth and death are really dominant themes in in this right. um, episode as well as in the whole book. So. Um, Anyway, Stephen sees these two figures, and he thinks, oh, it must be those two midwives down from the Liberties that he saw earlier. We have his whole imagination about who they must be and what they're doing, mm-hmm. which is never confirmed. That's all in Stephen's mind, right? All of this is seen through that kind of Berkeleyan layer of interpretation. But they were, in his mind, disposing of a fetus, and that, again, is this, this symbol of decay and dissolution merging with birth, right? The the this, The... Death of this recently born person, mm-hmm. and we can see this merging then of birth and, and death themes, and that will that will continue throughout the episode yeah. as we go forward. And he's imagining them; uh, they have tucked it safe amongst the bulrushes. Do you know what Bible story that refers to? Yeah, Moses. Yeah, so yeah. baby Moses was put in a little basket in the the bulrushes in Egypt, and then he was eventually found. And you know, isn't that? Um, Charlton Heston movie, yeah, Ten Commandments. He got some mad japes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that's what I'm I'm picturing now in Technicolor, my memory. Mm-hmm. Um, but so he's that they have tucked it safe among the bulrushes. He's imagining, oh, you know, like we we said many episodes back, I believe in an episode called "Gaze in Your Omphalos." I think that was the one where we talked about this. That he was imagining these two women as midwives who were carrying um, a, a, a miscarried child yeah. and depositing it in the sea right so this is kind of a it's almost a, a sarcastic or sardonic way of, of saying oh they've 
they've disposed of that unborn child's body. Yeah. But then Stephen sees this dog has kind of run up towards him, and then it turns back and runs back to the people. And so Stephen realizes these are different people. And he ends by saying, who? And we will talk about that more in our next episode. Hmm. Do you have any thoughts before we finish? I don't think so. No. I think hmm. I put most of it in. Okay. Yeah. Do you feel like if you went back and read this far in Proteus just on your own, you'd know what it was about? I'd have a fighting chance. <laughs> yeah. Good. Without good, it, good. I would have been completely lost. It would have been like two, three pages and then I'll fake this and throw it off the wall. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. a lot of people have that. Go make a pizza or a coffee <laughs> or something. Yeah, no, and I've I've read other writers who've done stream of consciousness, so I kind of get the gist. But mm-hmm. but Joyce really lays it on thick. Mm-hmm. Like he's he's not giving you any kind of any help. It's like right, just jump right in, mm-hmm. <laughs> enjoy my brain. <laughs> all right, all right. Well, in that case, we will see y'all again in two weeks. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Blooms and Barnacles podcast. Your support means the world to us. You can subscribe to Blooms and Barnacles on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Spotify, or any other place you listen to podcasts. You can also stream our episodes at our website, bloomsandbarnacles.com. That's bloomsandbarnacles.com. If you've enjoyed our podcast, you can do one of three things to help support us. Number one, please donate at bloomsandbarnacles.com. The PayPal donate button is at the upper right-hand corner of the page. This helps us pay for coffee and for hosting fees. Two, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice. This helps more people find our show. And three, share us with a friend who you think would enjoy Blooms and Barnacles. Blooms and Barnacles is also a blog. We post new articles and original artwork semi-regularly at bloomsandbarnacles.com. Never miss an update by following us on social media. Search for our group Blooms and Barnacles Podcast on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at BarnacleCast. You can also send us an email at bloomsandbarnacles at gmail.com. That's blooms, A-N-D, barnacles at gmail.com. We met some of our favorite podcast friends through random emails and social media DMs. We'd love to hear from you too, so don't be afraid to shoot us a message anytime. We'll be back in your feed in two weeks. Bye for now.